The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Business. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, how do we fix Britain's broken economy? And how can Labour lead the debate? Does a new leader mean there'll be a new economic blueprint for the party? This is The Business from The Guardian. In the studio this week, we've got two Labour MPs and rising stars of their party. Chukar and Munna represent Streatham. And Rachel Reeves is a member for Leeds West. We've also got John from Rutherford, who's prime mover of the New Political Economy Network and editor of Soundings Journal. And finally, The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott, is here too. Welcome to you all. Hello. Hi. Hello. Now, today sees the first publication by the New Political Economy Network. The group first met here at Guardian Towers a year ago in an attempt to bring together disparate voices on the left to reinvigorate Britain's economic thinking. The result is an e-book called Britain's Broken Economy and How to Fix It. It aims to create an alternative to orthodox economic opinion and give Labour an intellectually sound new economic strategy. You can download it for free at lwbooks.co.uk and it's on the front page. Now, we're devoting the whole podcast to what Labour should be saying on the economy. But before we begin, a disclosure. I'm one of the e-book's co-authors, along with Larry Elliott and John from Rutherford. But rest assured, I've had my opinion surgically removed for the duration of this podcast, so I'll be as impartial as possible. Jonathan, what's this new group trying to do? The idea of the group came up about 18 months ago in the light of some of the campaigning networks that were started up before um, Barack Obama's presidential election campaign. And they kind of set the mood, if you like. They kind of attempted to change the weather around people's thinking, uh, around the economy or around politics. A small number of us got together and John Crudder sent out the invitations to, I think, about 40 economists to start with. Uh, the idea was to have regular discussions, seminars. We've run a couple of public meetings, and as you said, this is our first ebook. Tell us what the argument is. The basic argument is that Labour uh, bought into the kind of neoclassical ideas that underpinned the Thatcherite economic revolution of the 70s, and that this actually seriously politically weakened it and uh, undermined its ability, really, I think, to see what was happening to the British economy over the past decade. So, for example, the housing bubble wasn't recognised as a problem. The fact that the British economy itself was so unbalanced with uh, so much emphasis on the financial sector and uh, under-resourcing and under-investment of the industry and the regional imbalances of the economy, I don't think these were properly recognised. Briefly, what kind of proposals are you laying out? The general idea is that we have to rethink macroeconomic policies, but also to, to try and define a political economy around four key themes, which are really about people's sense of security. The first one is jobs, homes for people, pensions and fair finance, and that these should be the way of trying to rethink our economic policy. Larry, how radical does that sound to you? I think it's pretty radical, and I think that you know there are three, three things that are necessary here. One, one is to get the macroeconomic strategy right. I mean, it's quite clear to me that what the coalition government is doing is completely wrong, and I think it's important that Labour lays out a different macroeconomic strategy that makes sense. Uh, but the second thing to do, I think, is to situate that into some sort of 
political ideology to, to, to make it part of a, a, a proper political programme which makes the case for a more interventionist macroeconomic strategy, not just something which acts as sticking plaster when things go wrong, but actually makes a positive case for intervention and for the involvement of the state. And the third thing that needs to be done is to turn that into some form of political programme, into a set of particular concrete proposals that can be used for Labour government going forward in its period in opposition, hopefully uh, later in government. But I mean, I think that actually what, what this attempts to do is to fill a big hole on the left, which has been obvious for quite a long time, actually, that buying into an awful lot of the neoliberal right-wing agenda of the 1990s, early 2000s actually did leave the party somewhat disorganised intellectually when the crisis came, because Labour was then forced to do a lot of things that it had said it couldn't do and wouldn't do in, over the previous 15 years. And that made it very hard, I think, for the party to fight the last election, because it was, it, it was unable to articulate a really strong intellectual argument for what it had been doing over the last two years properly. I mean, it, did, it did very well in the last two years, I think. You know, it did really well after the crisis broke, but it was unable to actually make an argument to the voters as to why it had actually done what it had done. Rachel, bring us up to date then. How much of a sort of serious economic debate do you think there's been over the leadership campaign? Well, first of all, I would say that in 1997, Labour's goal was to prove that it was a party that could be trusted with the economy and provide macroeconomic stability, hence giving independence to the Bank of England for setting interest rates and setting up the golden rules for borrowing. At the same time, Labour introduced the national minimum wage and helped through tax credits to lift pensioners and families out of poverty. So I think there's a lot to be proud of. But I think Jonathan and Larry are right that mistakes were made and the the crisis, the financial crisis in 2007, really caught policymakers and economists around the world out. Nobody saw the size of the shock coming and it's right that in the event of that, that, that huge cataclysmic shock to the world economy that we think again about how to deliver economic policy, both macro and micro policy. In terms of the leadership debate, it's been going on for four months now and will uh, culminate this weekend at Labour Party conference. But it has been a chance to think about where Labour went wrong. And I'm backing Ed Miliband in the leadership contest and he's talking about three things in particular on the economy that I would support. The first is a living wage. We have a minimum wage uh, in this country. It's going up in um, October. It's getting on for £6 an hour now. But if you're earning £6 an hour, you're still living in poverty. In London, you need to earn a little bit more than £7 an hour to be out of poverty. And Ed is saying quite rightly that many businesses, most businesses, can afford to pay people more than £7 an hour and that they should do so because it's economically right, but it's the right thing to do. It's um, morally right as well. Ed's also talking about a high pay commission because the pay of the average workers has not kept pace um, with the, the people at the top of um, organisations and, and if you look at the pay of people at the bottom those those people's standard of living have actually um, reduced so Ed's talking about having a high pay commission which will look at the reasons for the gaps between people at the top and at the bottom and working on the policies to put in place to reduce those inequalities a real recognition that it's not just poverty that matters but it's about equality as well and I support that and the third thing is about the role of the financial services sector all parties both in the UK and internationally 
put too much faith in financial markets and uh, we were all caught out by the crash. But it's now time to, to rein those in through better regulation, through greater transparency and I would also support greater taxation on, on the profits and the transactions of financial institutions, including perhaps some sort of Robin Hood tax, but certainly a lot more than the £2.4 billion banking levy that the government have introduced. The profits of the big four banks alone in the UK were £15 billion in the first half of this year. I think they can p- afford to pay a little bit more to bring down the budget deficit, which frankly they're responsible for causing in the first place. So I think we are having some debates within the party about the future of the economy. And when the leadership contest comes to an end at the weekend, I hope would be taking those arguments to the Conservatives and to the country. The problem is, Chuka Amuna, uh, uh, is that talking about low pay, high pay and bankers is all very well, but within a month of whoever uh, it is taking over the Labour Party, they've then got to go, go into battle uh, against uh, the most savage spending cuts that we'll have seen since Second World War. And they'll be asked time and time again, if you don't like these spending cuts, what would you do instead? And if you do agree there should be some spending cuts, then what would you cut? How battle-ready do you think any of those potential leadership candidates is? Well, in a way, I'm not too concerned whether they're better-ready or not. They've got a big job to do and I want them to do it. I I mean, I'd agree with absolutely everything that Rachel said. I think we've got a short-term challenge and a long-term one. I think in the short term, we do have to meet the argument about the deficit head on. The coalition's argument is that there is absolutely no alternative to what they are doing. They are presenting it as an economic necessity. I think we need to do more to challenge that. Now, that means if we're going to challenge it, we have to decide how we're going to do so. And I think the battleground in the short term is around the time frame for paying down the debt and also the ratio of spending cuts to tax increases in terms of the contribution to reducing the deficit. Stop there. Does that mean that you disagree with the commitment that Labour went into election with, that it would halve the deficit by the end of the Parliament? No, actually, but I think what we failed to do was to emphasise flexibility. Um, in the Fiscal Responsibility Act, there was scope for us to change the time frame for it to be paid down um, in order you didn't to... You fail to meet... emphasise... Uh, flexibility. Well, we, you deliberately chose not to emphasise flexibility to show that you were more you were more conservative than conservatives. Maybe, um, maybe there, there there came a point where there was a competition, which will bring me on to the the long term point. But that was the past. We've got to look to the future. And I think George Osborne's weakness is that he has no plan B. Um, his only plan B, from what can one can make out and read it between the lines, is a nod and a wink to the Bank of England governor to give us a bit more quantitative easing. But because he's talked so tough. Um, he's really boxed himself into a corner in terms of being able to relax his fiscal position. Now, I think we can emphasise flexibility. So if the, the forward economic indicators at the moment are not fantastic, and one thing actually I think Rachel has said before, we make a mistake if we focus purely on the risk of there being a double-dip recession. There may not be a double-dip recession, but I think in the medium term, the real danger is that we just have sluggish growth for a long period and, and, and big unemployment. And if we focus in on that, then that may give us scope later on, say February, March time, to maybe revise the time frame f- within which it is to be paid down on account of the and account of the data. But actually, the much bigger challenge for the new leader is in the long term and is actually in terms of reframing this whole debate. You can see in the language that the Chancellor uses, they've obviously been taking a lot of advice from Frank Luntz and other American strategists on use of language and metaphor in terms of the way they present this stuff. They present managing the economy in terms of managing your household finances, which is utterly absurd. A household doesn't have its own bank. <laughs> the British government has the Bank of England. A household has finite life is expectancy people in it are going to die at some point government goes on forever and we need to find our own language 
to describe our alternative in very simple, easy to understand terms. Myself and Rachel can go on the doorstep and say, people go, yes, that makes sense. Now that that is the big long-term challenge. And I say we've got to reframe it around growth and jobs. And that is why actually I welcome the content of this book so much, because it does make a very good point, which is that one of the problems with new labour is they handed over monetary policy to the Bank of England, which, you know, Bank of England independence was something that I supported. But they really refused to use fiscal policy levers to do that much. And in terms of a, a, a general macroeconomic policy, um, that was quite lacking. And this is what I welcome with this book, because it brings a focus in on that. Um, and on the need to invest in, in business investment. And, and we've obviously got to do more work in terms of what that will look like. I mean, well, there have been a lot of talk about Keynes. And in some respects, we've misinterpreted what he was saying in the 1930s because there is a tendency you know, to talk about consumption. But actually, he was very much focused on investment. And that's what we need now, I think. OK, well, Chuka, you've done me a great favour because you brought us neatly on to the second stage of, of this podcast where we're going to discuss a bit about what Labour did wrong in the past. <laughs> because, Chuka, if mm. you agree with so much of this book, mm. it lays quite a big charge sheet against Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. So which bits of New Labour record do you think it got wrong? Well, look, I tell you, from a very practical, in, in, from a very practical level and on a, my own personal professional experience, when I started my legal career in the city... I spent a lot of time working on securitizations, um, highly leveraged private so equity transactions. I am a guilty party, and I, I, you know, I hold my hands up to that. In, in some senses, although I was working it from a practical level and wasn't necessarily dealing with the finance, it kind of felt like you were dealing with funny money in these transactions, and you kind of wondered what is the actual output from this beyond shifting around money. And I think this is one of the points that the book makes in terms of the whole st- way our economy is structured. One of the reasons we were so exposed to the financial crisis is because we allowed the financial sector to grow relative to the rest other different sectors in the economy, like manufacturing. So I don't think this is a moment actually for Labour to be prisoners of our past. I don't think that's what my constituents want. They're interested in what we're suggesting for the future. And clearly, we didn't get everything right. But as Rachel said, we did get some things right. Let's not forget that we lifted 600,000 children out of poverty. We set, put in place things like regional development agencies and Business Link, for example, which help, help businesses. So there are good things that we did. But let's face it, Aditya, if we got everything right, I wouldn't be sitting here as an opposition backbencher, would I? OK, Rachel, Chuck has done a valiant job there batting for the new Labour record. But if you're going to admit that it got some things wrong, what are those things it got wrong? Well, I think uh, it's already been touched on a little bit, but there were growing imbalances in the economy, both globally and here in the UK. A lack of investment and consumption financed by by debt and borrowing. More could have been done either through monetary policy or through through other government policy to try and address that, that balance. Also about the balance between manufacturing and financial services, for, for example... Labour, until really the last couple of years, Larry's spoken about uh, Labour's response to the financial crisis in terms of getting the economy back on track and the recapitalisation of the banks. But also in the last couple of years, Labour started uh, an industrial strategy. And that was a great start, but we came too late to that game. More could be done, much more could be done to try and help grow the industries and the businesses of, of the future and the jobs of the future. 
I fear that the coalition government, who have a great scepticism about the role of the state, will say, well, if these businesses are viable and if this investment is worth it, then the free market will finance it and it will happen. But that's not the strategy that India and China and Germany and other economies are taking. They're taking on a much more hands-on approach to ensure that the businesses and the technologies of the future get finance. And they're putting in place the regulation, uh, for example, on energy policy to encourage those investments. Now, if the British government sits back and says, let the free market decide what wind turbines to invest in or whether to invest in, in nuclear or clean coal, for example, then, then they'll decide and it's no role of government to pick winners. But I think there is a role of government to help support the finance of industry, especially when banks aren't lending to anybody right now, but also uh, to put in place a regulation to, to, to rebalance the economy. And I think that is something that Labour got wrong. Chuka talked about the regional development agencies and they did have an impact impact but the inequalities between regions as well are still t- too great uh, and certainly areas like mine in, in Leeds we've got a very proud industrial past based on engineering and textiles we'd like to have an industrial future that we can be proud of as well which is about more than just financial services. That's situated in some sort of ideological or intellectual case for interventionism doesn't it I mean that, I think you know you can run through a Labour's record and pick out individual things that went wrong like you know the loss of a million jobs in manufacturing or manufacturing's fall in the share of output from 20% to 12% over <coughs> the course of Labour years or you can you can pick out a number of things specifically wrong but actually in order to get it right Labour has to articulate things that it's doing like support for Sheffield Forge Master, which I think was good support for you know future jobs fund which I thought was good into some into an argument which says actually free markets don't work perfectly I mean I think that was the big intellectual problem Labour had um, which was that it did buy into the argument from which was prevalent from the mid-1970s onwards that markets always cleared market prices are always rational and that eventually if you left things to the market for long enough then everything would work out fine I mean I think that's that was the, that was what was exploded spectacularly in 2007 2008 yeah. and Labour has I think if Labour's going to succeed it has to put all those very important micro policies, even the big macro things like an industrial strategy, into an intellectual argument which says, actually, we don't believe that free markets actually always deliver the right sort of outcomes. There is a role for markets, but there's also a very positive role for the state in doing things which will help the economy, not just in terms of helping people you know, lift, them out of, lift them out of poverty, but actually positive in terms of growth and actually spurring on entrepreneurship. I mean, if you look around the economy, an awful lot of what the state does is actually very positive to, to growth in firms. And Labour needs to, the left needs to articulate a strong intellectual case for, for the state, which, they, is what, which is what Keynes did in the 1930s. They get very nervous about that. And I think one of the problems is, is that too often in state intervention is defined in terms of spending. Spending, particularly in terms of industrial um, subsidies and, and the general industrial strategy as a role, but there are lots of other things that government can do um, through intervention to redress the balance of the economy, for example, corporate governance. I mean, if you look at the Companies Act, 
you only have to pay lip service to the considerations of workers and the environment in which your business is operating under the law. Nothing more than that. I think there's space there for development, which actually the book picks up on. There are other things. I mean, one of the things that I found so frustrating during our, our time in government is there are other forms of organising than your traditional company. Look at John Lewis. Why didn't we do more to encourage mutuals, those types of um, uh, instituted entities? Why didn't we encourage them? Mutuals sort of talked of Labour's past, didn't they? I mean, that was the problem. Yeah. They, they, they didn't really I, fit with the sort of new glowing but image I think they've of, just got of being pro-finance, pro-business. Pro I mean, they, they were sort of rooted in sort of, you know... Yeah. North, but they were northern. worried about the past, yeah. again. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, this perhaps... I mean, maybe that's one good thing that will come of having a fairly big new intake because I think we kind of pride ourselves. We are not prisoners of the past. Yeah. We've got... If Labour is to move forward and to put forward a fresh new alternative, it has got to stop being a prisoner of its past. But one of the big challenges, and maybe I'll throw this back at you, Larry, is quite interventionist industrial strategy does require spending and what we're always going to have people saying to us in this context is where are you going to get the money from it doesn't sorry i'm not larry but i'll (laughs) (laughs) respond a little bit to that because it's not all about spending no it's it's about leveraging private sector finance it's about saying to the banks you know we have bailed you out even if we haven't funded you recapitalized you directly you've benefited from loan guarantees you've benefited from quantitative easing and frankly if you're making 15 billion pounds worth of profits you could probably afford to lend just a little bit more to um to, to businesses so i'd to say help that the grow. most successful example of an industrial strategy anywhere in the world is probably the united states you know where an awful lot of the pharmaceutical industry is based around you know direct government intervention in 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 pure science and we've had the internet without the, without the defense spending I mean, you know if you, the idea that the state is somehow you know just out there picking winners and wasting a lot of taxpayers money is not really proven by what's going on elsewhere in the world mm. you look at germany you know with very strong regulation to boost yeah. their environmental industries and their green technology you look at you know you look at, you look at france or, yeah. or or china i mean all these countries are actually you know, see the virtue in having a very strong state and, a, and an interventionist industrial strategy that doesn't that can involve you know some sort of loans as it was sheffield forge mice i just said that that was actually seed called money very well spent i mean mm. it was um, that no one else would have given but i mean it, it doesn't always mean money it may do in some cases it also means it also means regulation it also mm. means ta- I think we need it also to. means tax policies you know it yeah. means, it means but it just means being a bit more bold about the idea that actually the private sector doesn't, doesn't have all the doesn't answers and right. the state is not always a problem okay well look, this discussion is getting worryingly consensual so we're going to introduce a discordant voice at this point john redwood is chairman of the conservative economic affairs committee and he doesn't even accept that we've been vastly deregulated in the first place i do not accept the argument uh, that deregulation has failed and that we need some other recipe to encourage more private sector jobs. Nor do I think that you can live without all regulation. I've always had a balanced view on this, uh, but in recent years I've lived with more regulation than I think we need or I think is desirable. Uh, We have too many regulations that achieve the opposite of what they're seeking to achieve. At the same time, they, they often put off entrepreneurs and they often deter the creation of new jobs. The worst downturns of the post-war period illustrate the dangers uh, of an over-regulated system where the people making the calls on banking regulation, on credit and on money make the wrong calls. Uh, There has to be an element of centralisation and a strong element of government involvement uh, in credit and money. But unfortunately, uh, the exchange rate mechanism system did enormous damage because it was a very disruptive policy. It set the wrong interest rates and the wrong currency level for quite a long time, which lost us a lot of jobs and set us back a long way. 
And then in 2005 to 2009, uh, the so-called Independent Bank of England and the FSA between them uh, presided over the most enormous ballooning of bank balance sheets, excess credit, interest rates too low, and then did the opposite. Uh, they then had a period when there was too little credit, there was too little money in the money markets, and interest rates were too high. And that boom and bust approach to banking regulation and to money supply did enormous damage from which we are only slowly recovering. John Redwood there. Jonathan, your book bangs on a lot about free market fundamentalism and the dangers of deregulation. John Redwood's just saying that you're talking nonsense. Let me just go back to something that Larry said about political ideology, because there is an ideological struggle. Yes, he's going to say nonsense, but I also think his ideas are nonsense, and maybe there's going to be no meeting of minds on that. But, you know, he belongs to a Tory party that has historically... Uh, looked after the interests and the property rights of the wealthy. So he would. And um, he might say that it was a disaster, but what's he going to be offering, for example, Rachel's constituents? So there is an issue of political ideology here. And I think that Labour has to look long and deep at its own history, actually, and the way it's thought about capitalism. And also the revisionism that it went through with Crossland, for example. I think Crossland got it wrong about capitalism. He thought that something had sort of settled and it could be engaged with and it could be regulated to bring prosperity to people. And of course, you know, soon after he was making these pronouncements, you know, we had Thatcherism and a very discordant capitalism emerges. And again, with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, as they, you know, evolved the, the, the New Labour third way ideas, there was a sense that globalisation was a force of, of good. It was a productive force that could bring wealth to the country and, to, to, and everyone would benefit. And that, you know, it's clearly a very mistaken understanding of the nature of capital accumulation and what it does and the need that it has to be regulated, that markets must serve society and, and markets must be managed, otherwise they'll manage us and they will cause, you know, destruction to society, basically. So I think that there has to be this larger understanding first as, as we think about the policies. And we need to ask ourselves, what kind of society do we want? You know, what is the good society that is increasingly being talked about? Not only amongst uh, Labour politicians, but actually now across Europe, the social democratic parties who are trying to rethink their politics are also beginning to try and grapple with the idea of the good society. So we have to think about what kind of economy will work to, to give us a more equal society where there's more mutualism, but most of all, more democracy. And I think if we want to win the argument around the state and not get into some stale standoff with with uh, the Tories about whether the state should be large or small or whatever. We have to talk about democracy all the way up and all the way down. And we have to talk about reciprocity. It's about give and take. And that has to be, you know, that has to include bankers as well as people on benefits. It's always been far too one-sided that it's the poor and the weak who've been picked on. The bankers have been left alone. New Labour was always too timid with vested interests. And in some ways, there was an industrial strategy for New Labour, and that was to give the city its head and to make as much money as possible in order to skim off some of the the, uh, profits, in order to redistribute it through rebuilding schools and building hospitals. I think we face something that that the Labour government after the Second World War faced. It's, a, it's that scale. I think the rethinking has to take 
into account the, the nature of British society now and the state of the British economy. The difference, though, is between now and 1945 is that this is the equivalent of Churchill winning the election in 1945, isn't it? That, you know, the, <laughs> you've had interventionist policies to win the war, and yet the person who wants to turn the clock back to free market politics wins the election. I mean, that's the scale of the... That is uh, the, scale, bit, the yeah. scale of the defeat is that, you know, having completely failed... I mean, I, John Redwood's argument, I think, is pretty rum, the idea that we've had too little regulation between... 1997 and 2007 and that that somehow you know we, we had an over-regulated over-regulated system and that caused the crisis seems to me to me it's the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life but I mean it is it is rather bizarre that you know the the party of deregulation is now in charge. I mean, you know, having seen the implosion of the deregulated model, the people who actually believe in a small state and deregulation and austerity budgets are actually being in charge. It is like having the Tories back in control in 1945. Well, I, think, I think Larry's hit the nail on the head uh, on some of the politics of this because yeah. I think one of the difficult things for the Labour Party, and frankly, even if we'd had a new leader sooner and we're putting forward an alternative sooner, whether or not we would have got a hearing is another thing altogether. The election was treated as mandating the coalition to do what it is doing now when in fact if you actually look at the arithmetic whether they have a mandate to go for the kind of swift and deep consolidation they're envisaging is highly questionable particularly yeah. given that Nick Clegg and who I think has got a lot to answer for basically had been saying to your sister paper the observer on the 6th of June that he changed his mind on the speed of consolidation after the election and uh, as a result of a, a very intense conversation he had with the Bank of England governor the Bank of Eng England governor told me at a Treasury Select Committee hearing, he hadn't told Nick Clegg anything particularly new after the election. Clegg then changes his position and says he'd actually decided long before the election that he'd changed his mind on this, but hadn't told 6.8 million people who had voted for his party. The idea that there was some majority in the country out there for the kind of austere measures they're going for is, I think, very questionable. And it's been shown in the polls. The recent YouGov poll, which shows on various questions the public extremely nervous about going for these swift and deep cups. And I think that indicates there is an opening for the party. I think what we're going to see... When Labour gets a new leader and we hit the 20th of October with the Comprehensive Spending Review is that the news cycle and the story on economics has a window to change and we have to shift it. Rachel, you've got, on one hand, you've got John Rutherford talking about mutualism and reciprocity and uh, new forms of corporate governance. On the other hand, you've got Chuka sort of outlining a coalition strategy of talking about handbag economics. Which of those do you think goes down better on the doorsteps when you go talking to your constituents? When I go and talk to constituents in, in Leeds West, as I was doing last weekend, you need to talk about what matters to them, and that's their jobs and their security. In Leeds West, unemployment has increased during the recession, but also what's really hit is that people are not getting paid overtime. If you're self-employed, a lot of people work in the construction industry in my constituency. They're not getting the contracts that they were getting previously, so there's more time out of work. And they're extremely nervous about their future. And a comprehensive spending review that is going to mean cuts in government departments of 25 to 40% is going to hurt people, whether they work in the public or private sector. This idea that the private sector is going to somehow come in and fill the void oh. of the jobs lost in the public sector is ludicrous. just crazy. It's ludicrous, ludicrous. Chuka, yeah. Because 
who builds the building schools for the futures? It's not <laughs> civil servants in Whitehall, it's construction firms in my constituency. Who builds the Sure Start centres? Who provides the the caretakers and the and, and the dinner ladies at school? You know, it's private sector companies, so you're going to get a double whammy of job losses in the public sector, but also in the private sector. And you've got to talk about on the doorstep what matters and what connects with people, and that's their jobs and their family's security. Larry, last question to you. Throughout this discussion, there's been a split between you and Jonathan and Rachel and no, Chuka. No, I don't think <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a split between all of us and you. And Jonathan and you talk about and the sort of need for rethinking the ideology and all the rest of it. Chuck and Rachel consistently talk about policies and picking off policy areas where Labour's done well or done badly. Isn't there always going to be a problem where you've got a, an economic philosophy but also a, a political party that needs to win over the Daily Mail and needs to get it get heard on the doorstep? Well, maybe there is, but I mean, I, I think my, the lesson I take from what the right did in the 1970s was that their policy program was rooted firmly in an ideological program. I mean, they, they had a they had a very strong analysis of what they thought was going wrong, which went right to the heart of the of, of the British state and to the, and to the British economy, and they built their policy program around that. And I think that's what the left has to learn the lesson from. I don't think you can actually just have free-floating policies without some sort of ideological base. So when you ask Rachel what she needs to say to people on the doorstep, she needs to be able to articulate a, a set of policies that resonate with people. And what the Tories have done very successfully is tell people, well, you know, you're belt-tightening, so the state needs to belt-tighten. They've got a very, very strong political message. And then when's, when Labour has succeeded, it's always had a very strong political message to, able, to enable it to get its policy message across. In 1945, it was, don't let's go back to that. We didn't win the war to go back to the 1930s. That was a very, very powerful argument in favour of the NHS and the house-building programme. 64, it was, you know, white heat. It was all about grouse moors, and you didn't want, it, didn't want the old buffers in charge. You wanted the generation of the Beatles in charge. It was very powerful. I think Labour has to articulate a, a broad ideological message, and only by doing that will it actually get its policies across, I think. Well, that's all we've got time for in this week's podcast. Next week, we'll have more capitalist myth exploding from Harjun Chang. But for now, my thanks to my guests, Larry Elliott, John from Rutherford, Rachel Reeves and Chukka Munna. The producer was Ian Chambers. My name is Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.